0: Uh, this year I've learnt chickens are sensitive creatures. Uh, you wouldn't think it with their unblinking eyes and sharp beaks, but a few months ago we added a new hen to our flock. Uh, that's the two original hens up there. Now, since then we've learnt that it's adding a single hen isn't a good idea because it caused a bit of an upset. Uh, the original two hen had, hens had been quite reliable Almost every day since they started laying, we collected two eggs. But the moment we added this extra hen, the well went dry. Uh, The hens were healthy, uh, eating plenty of grain, plenty of grain. But most days, there was not a single egg in the nest. And quite often as Anita or I came back from the coop, you'd hear us threatening If you don't start laying soon, it'll be the crockpot for you. I don't know if it was the muttered threats, but things are doing much better now, and most days we collect two or three lovely eggs, though one did start going broody yesterday, so there'll be some threats muttered again soon. Today we read about this fruitless fig tree in Mark 11. The event with that tree is very weird. Here's this tree, no fruit. Jesus gets very angry. What's going on? It seems very random, out of place, but it's actually central to Jesus' mission and especially these final days on earth as we're reading about them here today. Uh, Last week, we heard Jesus' ominous prediction. He said, we are going up to Jerusalem And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. Uh, Last week, uh, Jesus and his followers entered Jericho. And it's only a day's walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. Uh, Today we're going to hear what happens as Jesus enters Jerusalem. So Jesus and crowd are all on the road. They're on their way up from Jericho, coming over the Mount of Olives and through the villages of Bethany and Bethphage, which are two villages on that mountain. And from that mountain, the Mount of Olives, you're not far from Jerusalem. In fact, uh, from that mountain, you can see Jerusalem, the temple uh, everything. Uh, this is a photo taken from the Mount of Olives, and you can clearly see the temple precinct. The, the golden roof, that's the Dome of the Rock, but you can see, uh, that's, which is where the temple used to be, and you can still see the, the walls and that kind of stuff. Now have a look at what verse 1 of Mark 11. Mark tells us this is the route Jesus travelled, which might seem like trivial detail, but take note of this geography because it's really important for understanding some of the strange things later on in this passage. When Jesus is up on the mountain, he gets a couple of disciples to find and untie a colt, a young horse or donkey because this is the way he's going to go down into the valley and then up into Jerusalem. So read with me from verse 1, Mark chapter 11 and verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus uh, they, and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he send his disciples to untie this unbroken, unridden cult? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First, Jesus is in control. Everything that happens as he enters Jerusalem, even as he is betrayed, rejected and crucified, everything is deliberate. Everything is under his control. With this cult, either it's because he knows everything or he's planned this with the cult's owners. Either way, he is in control. But there's more going on than this. Why a cult? Why not choose some big, muscly, mighty stallion? A few hundred years before Jesus, God said through the prophet Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah lived at a time when Israel had no king, but through him God said, a king is coming. A humble king, a low-licking, a king who's not gonna march into Jerusalem on a war horse, but he's going to be riding a colt. And when this happens, the people of Jerusalem should dance and sing. And as Jesus gets on this colt, that's what happens. The crowd who are with him, the crowd following him into Jerusalem, roll out the red carpet and start rejoicing. Verse 8. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven!" The words that people are singing are from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 verse 25 says, Lord save us. Lord grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. This psalm is a prayer. A prayer of thanks to God for what he's done. A prayer asking God to save. That's what the word Hosanna, which we read in Mark 11, that's the save us in verse 25. Hosanna means save us. It's a prayer asking for God to save his people. And it's a prayer asking God to bless his king. And you can see it's got this call and response bit. In verse 26, the travellers coming into Jerusalem, they sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the people in Jerusalem, the people in the temple, the house of the Lord, they're meant to respond, we bless you. But not on this day. On this day, there is silence from the temple. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. What an anticlimax. As the crowd comes down the Mount of Olives, praising God, as this procession enters Jerusalem, lining the dusty streets with soft cloaks and leaves, we expect something big to happen. Maybe we expect Jesus to march up to Herod's palace and take the throne by force. Or maybe for Jesus to go into the banking district and be welcomed by the financial power brokers as they negotiate to fund his army and his kingdom. Or even just that the priests would praise God and bless the Messiah. But none of this happens. Jesus goes to the temple, looks around, and not a word is spoken. He's shown he's in control. The whole cult thing, he's, he's completely in control, self-consciously entering Jerusalem as the promised king of Zechariah, but nothing's happening. What's going on? What's going through his mind? Well, the next day, Jesus heads back into Jerusalem, and on his way, he gets into an altercation with a fig tree, verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but figs because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now at first glance this seems irrational and over the top. Jesus is angry at a tree for not even having, for not having any fruit and verse 13 tells us it's not even fig season. It it seems even less rational than trying threatening chickens for them to start laying again. Why is Jesus so harsh with this tree? Well keep that question in the back of your mind as we follow Jesus To the temple, verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? but you have made it a den of robbers. It's not the day to get into Jesus' way, is it? What's going on here? Uh, The temple in the first century, uh, the main building of the temple was surrounded by a court, a courtyard. And it seems that this court was packed full of people running religious businesses. Now, selling animals to sacrifice isn't the real problem. The law of Moses allowed for this. So you didn't have to walk your cows or sheep or doves hundreds of kilometres. Instead, what you could do is sell your animal back home and go up to Jerusalem and buy one for sacrifice. Trading itself wasn't the issue. The problem was they'd set up in the courtyard, in the court of the Gentiles. This is the space just outside the main temple which was meant to be for non-Jewish people, for the nations to come and pray to the one true living God. Non-Jews weren't allowed into the proper temple, but they were meant to be allowed in the outer courts. But these traders were taking up all the space, so there was nowhere for the Gentiles to come to God. Now, maybe this was deliberate. Maybe they wanted to keep those dirty foreigners out of their temple. But I wonder if it was just an oversight. They'd lost sight of what God had promised through his prophets. They were more interested in getting their own religion right and they were so um, fixated on that. They just didn't even think about God's plans and what God had promised long ago through the prophets. God had promised his temple would become, look at verse 17 again, which is quoting Isaiah, verse 17, God says his house, the temple in Jerusalem, God's plan and mission is for the temple to become the place for all nations, Jews and Gentiles, the whole world, all nations would come and pray. But the religion of the temple had turned away from God's plan. On the outside, it looked good. The temple was an amazing building, an amazing monument. But inside, they corrupted the worship of God. They'd forgotten it's not just about them, but God's the God of the whole world. And the religious leaders, as they see Jesus do this, they get the message. They get taught by Jesus. They understood as he flipped the tables, Jesus was condemning the corruption of the temple, condemning their hypocritical worship of God. Not that they saw it as hypocritical, but they saw the condemnation. And they could also see the people were on Jesus' side. They liked what he was doing. They were losing power, losing face, so they start planning to get rid of Jesus. Verse 18, the chief priests... And the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. As the religious leaders begin plotting, Jesus goes back out to the villages. And in the morning, passes by the fruitless fig tree again. Verse 19 When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. When Jesus said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, he meant it, didn't he? Why did he do this? Why did he kill this poor tree? All it did was have leaves and no fruit. It's because the fig tree is a picture of God's people. In the Old Testament, there's a few times when prophets use the image of a fig tree to talk about God's people. I know those words are a bit small on the screen, so you might want to turn in your Bible to Hosea chapter 9. Hosea 9.10, which says... When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on a, the fig tree. But when they came to Baal Peor, it's referencing an event recorded in the book of Numbers, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. What God, what's God saying? His people used to be like a fig tree laden with fruit, laden with fruit even when it wasn't season. But then they've turned away from him and they've started worshipping pretend gods, idols. When Jesus sees this fig tree with plenty of leaves but no fruit, it's a picture of the religious leaders and of what the temple had become. All show, no reality. They do all the right religious rituals. They had loads of animals to sacrifice, but they'd lost sight of God's plan, God's heart for the nations. And also they didn't see God's king, the one who rode humbly on a colt. They're as bad as the people were back at Baal Peor. They're hypocrites Looks like true worship, but in their hearts it's idol worship. And the fig- uh, the withered fig tree is a warning. A warning that judgment is coming on false religion. On fake religion. That God's got something better than the temple in store. And this is where geography starts to matter, because where is Jesus when he says this? Where is this withered fig tree? It's on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. About 600 years earlier, the prophet Ezekiel had a vision. A vision that showed God's anger at what the temple had come to in those days. The worship of God was corrupt then. It was all leaves and no fruit. And in Ezekiel's vision... He sees the glory of God, the presence of God leave the temple. And where does it go? The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The mountain that's east of Jerusalem. What's that? It's the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel's prophecy is a a message of terrible judgment. As Jesus clears the temple and curses the fig tree, it's the same message. Jesus has left the temple because he saw nothing of the presence of God there. Once again, the glory of the Lord has left the temple and is now standing on the Mount of Olives. And this is both an amazing And a dreadful moment. It's amazing because if God's promised king has come, then the prayer of Psalm 118 is about to be answered. Save us. Lord, save us. It's about to be answered. If the glory of the Lord has come, it's the time of salvation. But it's also dreadful. Because the Old Testament prophets also say, When God arrives, it's also a day of judgment. And if the day of judgment is about to come, what's the only smart thing to do? It's to run to God for forgiveness, which is what Jesus says next, though in a slightly confusing way. So we're going to listen to what Jesus says and then work out what he means. This is verse 22. So we're back in Mark 11, verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. What's Jesus saying? Why would anyone want a mountain to end up in the ocean? It's a strange verse. Lots of people assume it's a a saying, a turn of phrase, that Jesus is saying, you think it's amazing I can make a fig tree with her? Well, just you Wait. If you pray, God will remove any of the mountains in your life, whether that's the mountain of cancer or a mountain of debt or a mountain of conflict in a relationship. Some people think Mark 11.24 means whatever you pray, it's going to happen. You can make God do whatever you like if you just believe enough. And sadly, this kind of teaching destroys people's faith. Because if this is what Jesus means... What happens if you pray, if you believe God can move your mountain and nothing happens? Well, you've got two choices, don't you? Option one, blame God. Jesus said prayer can move mountains, but it doesn't, so Jesus lied. That's option one. Option two is blame yourself or blame the person who's suffering. Why are they suffering? Well, obviously they don't believe enough. Their faith is weak, and so it's their own fault they're sick with cancer or can't get a job. That's such a damaging teaching. Though if it's what Jesus said, we'd have to face up to it. And maybe that's what he would mean if Jesus had said in verse 23, truly I tell you, if anyone says to a mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, it will be done for them. But Jesus didn't say a mountain. He didn't say some mountain. He says this mountain. Why? Why would anyone want this mountain to be thrown into the sea? Well, once again, geography is important. What is this mountain? When he says this mountain, he might be pointing at Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And if that's what he means, then this is another message of judgment. Jesus is saying Jerusalem is no longer, it no longer stands for God's place. It's corrupt. And so the temple is no longer where people will go to offer sacrifices. It's no longer the place you need to go to be right with God because Jesus' body is the true temple and his death will be the final, once for all, sacrifice for sin. And so this mountain may as well go jump in the jump in a lake because it's no longer where we go to meet with God. So he could be, as he says, this mountain... Jesus might have his finger pointing at Jerusalem. Though I wonder if again, it's actually about the Mount of Olives. In the prophet Zechariah, the same prophet who spoke about God's King humbly entering Jerusalem on a cult, Zechariah talks about the day of the Lord, the day of God's salvation and judgment. And Zechariah says, on that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Why would you pray for a mountain to be moved? If you knew Zechariah 14.4, it's because you're praying for God's kingdom to come for God himself to come and stand on the Mount of Olives bringing salvation and judgment. Neither Jesus nor Zechariah is talking literally about chunks of rock moving around, it's picture language. On that day when God shows up, it's going to shake the earth to to its core. Now whichever mountain Jesus was referring to, and I'm, leaning towards the Mount of Olives because of Zechariah 14. Either way, though, the message is pretty much the same. He's telling his disciples to pray for what the Old Testament prophets called the Day of the Lord, to pray for the coming of God's kingdom. In black and white language, he's telling them to ask God to send Jesus to die on the cross and rise again. And this is why Jesus says, whatever you ask for in prayer will happen. Because God has promised it. Jesus has said three times that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected by the religious leaders, he'll be killed and three days later rise again. And if this is about to happen, if God's king has arrived, if from the biblical perspective it's the end of the world, what should you do? Well, it's the time for righting wrongs and even more, the time to ask God for forgiveness. Now, I realise this is a bit of a head spin. Uh, You've got to know the Old Testament fairly well to, to understand what Jesus is going on here. And even what Jesus says himself is pretty tricky. So if I've lost you, listen up. What does it mean to pray to move mountains? It's praying for God's salvation to come. It's praying for Jesus' death and resurrection. So what's it mean for us? Because we live on the other side of that day. We live in the time between Jesus' resurrection and his return. So we don't need to pray for the cross and resurrection to happen. But we live in the time when we can be forgiven through Jesus. So we do need to listen to Jesus. The time is short. Now is the time to receive Christ and the forgiveness he offers and be prepared to meet our maker. But the religious leaders would have nothing to do with that. When God showed up, when Jesus cleans up the temple and shows how God has rejected their fruitless religion, they double down. Instead of seeking forgiveness, they conspire to kill God's king. And so the warning is, they're going to end up like the fig tree. And brothers and sisters, we need to hear that warning too, don't we? Are we like the fig tree? All leaves, but no fruit. I wonder whether in the temple they were so busy with their own religion, they'd lost sight of God's vision, God's mission to the world. They may not have been deliberately excluding Gentiles, but they'd lost sight. They'd overlooked God's plan. They had a nice religion that was very comfortable for them but had nothing to do with the fruit God was seeking. What about us? What are the things we do that crowd out mission? That subtly say to people, you're not important to God, you're not welcome here. I once visited a church that was celebrating Tartan Sunday. They probably didn't mean it. But it screamed, the moment you walked in the front door, God is only for people of a particular ethnicity, of a particular heritage, of a particular history. How might we be communicating something like that? That Jesus is only for you if you come from this kind of family, or your children have this kind of education, or you do This kind of work. What are the tables Jesus needs to flip here? We also need to hear the warning, don't we? Do we look good on the outside? We go through the motions of religion, meeting at church, singing and praying, but we're not captured by God's mission for the world. We want to keep the world out, build the wall higher, keep us safe. God's plan is to save sinners here and everywhere. Do you have a heart for the thousands, the tens of thousands of lost people in our region? Do you pray that they will receive God's salvation? Do you ask God to use yourself and our church In doing that, because that's why Jesus came. It's why he entered Jerusalem to answer the prayer of Psalm 118, Lord, save us. Jesus came to bring God's salvation to the world. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you that you have answered the prayer of Psalm 118 that salvation has come in Jesus. We praise you that the temple, the place we meet you, isn't a building but is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you because you have one salvation and forgiveness is available in the Lord Jesus. Please help us to be a fruitful church to be a people captured by your mission, who get rid of things that distract us from taking the good news of Jesus to our region and the world. We ask you to be pleased to be saving many people in our region. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.